to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Today, we're going to be talking about kinship care and adoptions, or grandparents raising grandkids. We're going to be talking today with Robin Sizemore. She is the director of Hopscotch Adoption and has been an adoption professional for 25 years. She is a parent through adoption and birth, and her agency has processed well over 100 international kinship adoptions, and she has been a pioneer in trying to educate and support these families both pre- and post-adoption. And we have Jeanette Willis. She is the executive director of Advantage Adoptions, One Church, One Child in Fort Worth, Texas. And she has over 20, 25 years of experience in adoption, and her agency has helped hundreds of grandparents, aunts, and uncles adopt their kin. Jeanette is also a former kinship child herself and is now a kinship parent as well as a mom to adopted and biological children. Welcome Robin and Jeanette to Creating a Family and thank you so much for being with us today to uh, talk about this really important issue. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. All right. Kinship adoption and other forms of caregiving encompasses the situations of grandparents raising grandkids, but also aunts and uncles and cousins raising their nieces and nephews and cousins. And this type of parenting brings joy and its own unique sets of challenges. But we don't want to overlook the fact that it does bring joy. As one grandmom told me, she said, there is something so special about being the primary caretaker of a child again and of being the center of that child's universe. And I'm getting to do it all over. Uh, I try not to lose sight of that blessing. And so although we're going to be talking about a lot today about a lot of these special issues, it's also important to uh, not lose sight of the joy uh, that, that children bring and at any stage of our life. Jeanette, can you tell us a bit about the scope of the problem or the scope of the issue, let's say? Well, it's huge and it's very common, although people may not think of it as being such. Kinship care is really um, a person who's taking care of a child by blood because they're connected or related to that child by blood. They're either family member or relationship. They're a fictive kin and uh, they have this connection. We have 2.7 million children um, whose parents cannot provide for them and they're being given care through uh, kinship caregivers. And overall, nationally, one in 11 children spend time in kinship care. And among African-American children, one in five at some time in your lives. So when I say I'm excited, I'm excited that information is being provided and that attention is given to this topic. So, and as a kinship child, um, I have a heart for caregivers, whether they adopt formally or whether they uh, provide care informally as was provided for me. Yeah, I feel the same way. I feel a uh, that these are the people who are stepping into the void yes. uh, and they and their and and their issues are some way similar to foster parents, but there are also some things that are unique, which is why we're doing this show to, to yes. focus on those things that are unique. But let's start by just running through some of the advantages of, of kinship, our grandparents, aunts and uncles stepping up to care for these children. And, and I acknowledge up to, that all the, that in every case, these advantages don't necessarily exist. Mm -hmm. But in general, the child already knows you, therefore there is less disruption and, and less disrupted attachment from the child's standpoint. The child gets to maintain ties with their extended family and their culture. 
uh, they have a shared history and the shared family legacy, which the child will grow up knowing about, as, ready, as well as ready access to family information and family medical information, just so across the board, the child is, remains connected. And also, this is what family is for. Uh, family is not always able to do it, but caring for Caring for family is, is at the heart of what family is. So those are some of the advantages. But in addition to the, these advantages and the joys of, of parenting a child full-time, there are also some challenges that are unique to relatives who are parenting their grandkids, nieces, nephews, et cetera. And I thought we would break them down by emotion. Uh, so let's start with the, uh, the emotion shame. Okay, Robin, I'm gonna begin with you. Uh, why is shame an issue with uh, kinship care, kinship adoption? Well, um, I can only speak from the, you know, from the intercountry aspect, and um, this would this would occur when um, there would be a, uh, a crisis that would leave a child in the status of an orphan, and it could be, um, you know. Uh, the death of a child it could be in one country a high incidence of murder suicide and in many cultures religiously that would be a terrible uh, shame uh, it could be mental illness and the you know parent would be committed indefinitely because mental illness is not recognized uh, but for for the child that, that's a stigma that, that sticks with the child um, and the family doesn't want to address it. Is ashamed of it, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of shame. Mm -hmm. And that, they, that their child could not take care of their, their child. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it, it really, it's really a lot of pain. And the, the, the child will internalize that, as any child would. But it's tenfold that you would have to be removed from your country and your culture mm -hmm. into another family. And I, I would throw it back to Jeanette to ask her if, if that would be similar. Yeah, what are some of the distinctions? You're right, because it, uh, that there might be differences between the, the shame that is felt by uh, an international relative versus in the sense that it's, it's further removed from them. So Jeanette, what are some of the feelings that you see when working with grandparents, sisters, brothers, uh, but in particular grandparents, because that's where I see shame often come all of the things that Robin spoke about, even though, um, you know, they're in the same community many times and the very few, we've done very few, if any, where they were interstate. They're all in the same community and oftentimes just a matter of, you know, miles or minutes apart. Um, but that shame that they feel that, that Robin spoke of, all of them feel that. And they come to us and that's the, you know, one of the number one things that they start reflecting on is, you know, where did I go wrong? What did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. That my child turned out like this and my child does not embrace or um, family. So yes, I've seen that. And as a child, um, it's, it's kind of interesting because a lot of times when we think of this work, we are thinking of providing resources to adults and that because the adults are stepping up and doing the right thing, it's going to be okay for the child. And it is, but that child does go through shame. Um, one of the things that I remember is because we grew up in a, in a poor um, rural area and all you had was family. So when you lost your parents, you 
in my mind went way down as far as you know self-esteem and status because you have nothing else so um the blessing and the joy of that the other side of of it is as you said earlier dawn is is being able to have be connected to family that did you know want you and keep but that shame that a child feels has to do with um the all of those things as robin said being internalized something must have been wrong <clears throat> with me something you know what went wrong what did i do wrong as a child so um shame is a big part of it it's true whether it's a child out of foster care but for kinship care it's i think in some ways intensified and maybe i feel that way because i experienced it but um that shame is there for the child also yeah for and the parent you're right and the parent, the is parent and the child yeah and you know the other thing that i hear from parents is whether they are being judged or not they feel judged. feel judged and and they 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 tell me sometimes that they feel judged by other foster parents and it's the feeling that you know the the old saying the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and so it's the 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 feeling that 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 i am being put in the same category as my child or my sister who messed up and and it brings our whole family shame to our whole mm -hmm, family mm -hmm. and so yeah and i it's, that's just hard let's talk about another emotion let's talk about fear jeanette why is and, and let me point out that fear is both sometimes fear in the here and now but very often uh when i talk with uh relatives it's fear that they're projecting into the future so uh, jeanette talk to us a little about some of the fear that uh that uh, grandparents, aunts, uncles, sisters, brothers might be feeling uh, stepping up as a kinship provider? The biggest fear is that the children will go into foster care. That's the biggest fear is that I have to do it no matter what's going on with me, no matter how difficult this is financially, no matter how difficult this is emotionally, want my kids going into foster care. Mm -hmm. So they're afraid of what's going to happen legally to the children. Then, of course, there's a fear of, um, can I protect them? Will this, these other entities that are now a part of this process where, I, you know, you could parent freely in a sense when it's just done privately, you know, among families. But when other entities come into it, like Child Protective Services and law enforcement, then the spotlight is on that family and that family has the, the the shame that we spoke of early and then that fear of messing up or doing something that is against the rules and then the kids are going to be taken away from them. so they're afraid of that they're afraid of um look at how old i am um these kids are going to grow up i'm 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 50 now and these are children that that are five years old in 15 years i'm going to be 65 you know it's those things am i going to be too old also fear of being judged as being too old to care for the kids when they've been the go-to person for probably five or ten years because this child has been messing up since the children were born and they've been that person who has been there for the kids but when other entities come in to assess them then they are saying oh but you're this age and you have this health issue and your house is only this big, so they're afraid. I don't have enough. I don't have enough of me. I don't have enough of things around me. I don't have the right environment. So there's that 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 fear. And then there's also the fear of um, what is going to happen to my relationship with my child. I've been striving with this child all this time. I've been helping this child. I've been praying for this child, 
and hoping that this child will get it together. And now I have to totally cut this child off from their own children because I have to be seen as someone who can protect my grandchildren or my relative child from their parents. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. I mean, and that's just a few of them. I'm sure, you know, Robin can add more, but yeah. those are some of the main fears that I see. Robins, can you add some uh, uh, fears that uh, other uh, kinship providers uh, would feel uh, when, with even considering the prospect of caring for or adopting uh, their grandchild, niece? Yeah, um, unfortunately, often, um, sometimes, you know, because the international aspect, the only uh, go-to person that they would know to contact is an, an immigration attorney, perhaps mm. someone that they've already worked with. And that immigration attorney is unaware, which is no excuse, um, unaware of the Hague uh, Treaty and would start them down the path of, of something in $10,000 later, which they don't have. Again, this is born of crisis and they haven't mm. planned for an adoption and then realize that they legally couldn't touch it. And then they come to us and the fees are expensive because of compliance. And mm -hmm. so there's a financial aspect to it that is cost prohibitive. And so we do our, we all do our very best and we've been lobbying for some special considerations for kinship adoption. Uh, so there's, they're terrified of bankruptcy in, you know, how are they gonna survive it? We agree. And, um, and then, you know, uh, I mean, it's just so overwhelming. And then also they are under the misunderstanding that they can complete a domestic adoption abroad, which becomes an out of order adoption. Mm -hmm. Children could age out and then never be able to come. It's so complex. And it is so complex internationally. It's just so, and you're right. They don't know who to go to, uh, to ask the questions. And quite frankly, many immigration attorneys just, and this is a, a pretty uh, specialized uh, niche so uh, of law. So yeah, you're, it is so. Legally, they can't touch it. Uh -huh. Yeah. Let me throw out a couple of other fears that I hear uh, in, in support groups we run and in, in, in talking with, with uh, 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 kin, uh, sisters, brothers, uh, mostly though grandparents. Um, and this one we don't talk about, but fear of going through the rebellious teen years again. Yes. Oftentimes they have, in fact, very often, uh, in fact, most often, uh, they have been put through the ringer with their own child. And yeah, and, and so you think about it. And now the thought of going through it again, and they, you know, they, they thought they had come out, as one uh, uh, grandfather said, you know, we came out barely whole. I mean, we're hanging on, but we came out. He goes, I don't really know. And the child was two at the time. He said, I, I don't know that I can go through it again. And another, quite frankly, another very real fear is money. Uh, even, even if they have done a good job of saving for the retirement, and let's be honest, uh, many people have not. They weren't saving enough to raise another child. Uh, so that's another real fear. Um, Very real. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And and then and, and I guess, and this one's hard to say, but there is also fear. Is this child 
going to turn out like their parents. It's kind of a reverse from the apple doesn't fall. It's the same there it's applying, but the apple doesn't fall from the tree. Okay, is this child going to turn to drugs? Is this child going to, you know, uh, uh, sleep with every guy and, and, and not listen to my rules and sneak out at night? Is this child going to be like his mother or his father? Or, and I think that's one's hard to say because nobody wants it, it. It's clear that you're judging a child. And we also want to all believe that our, we, we, we have autonomy and how our children turn out. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, I think that's a, it's a real fear. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, we also know um, in utero exposures to toxins, uh, um, emotional cortisol is, you know, released. We don't know um, the prenatal exposures to a child and, you know, we know that there is real harm done to a child and we don't know how long that child was exposed and what they were exposed to, even, you know, pre-verbal. And there's so much um, science behind that, that these cards are stacked against that child, you know, despite, you know, how many times you hear love, love and prayer is going to fix that child. You know, there's uh, that fear of that unknown. And, um, the fear that, you know, I won't get it right again. Yeah. Or another fear, I don't know what to do to make sure I don't repeat the same mistake. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't, I thought I was doing, I mean, I thought I did the best I could and right. I didn't know. Yeah. So, all right. Let's, uh, the, that's, that's a big one, huh? It is, it is a big fear one. It's a big one. It is, it, it under, uh, it underrides so many, so many things. It's so many things. And another big one is guilt, which we've touched on. Uh, Jeanette, we've touched on uh, the guilt of that. I did this, you know, that, that something mm -hmm. I did in raising my child caused my child to not be able to raise their child or something I did as a sister and not stepping forward or doing whatever. Uh, although honestly, that one was usually more parents directed. But what are some other guilts, Jeanette, that you hear from kinship uh, grandparents or aunts, uncles, whatever? Um, guilt of well, guilt and shame. Guilt and shame kind of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. um, and some people are guilt feel guilty that they had this whole life planned, you know, after having raised kids, and now I have to take in these kids. And even though I'm doing, I'm stepping up, I really feel guilty because a little part may resent having to take on that added responsibility. So then there's guilt of, of feeling that way. So um, definitely, definitely um, that um, deny, uh, I guess the guilt of having to deny um, the self, whether uh -huh. it's a relationship, if they're married or, you know, a partner, um, there's that guilt of wanting to do something for me. It's my me time that I'm having to give up, uh -huh. even though I know what, why I'm doing it and I want to do this. I want to be here for this child. But then there's that, that, that guilt that goes hand in hand with that. So yeah. I would also, yeah, let me throw one out. And I, cause I was uh, talked with a grandmother this week and she, she said uh, it was a second marriage and she said, uh, and it, she was married. So she said, my, my husband didn't sign up for this. Didn't this, sign up for it. Yeah, this, <laughs> yes. It's not his kid. Mm. It's not his grandkid. Right. Right. And now 
he is in the thick of parenting a 13 year old and, and has parented this 13 year old for five years. And this, so there's guilt there as well. I mean, that, that I'm bringing this to on him when what he wanted to do is something totally different in his retirement years. Um, and another, go ahead, Robin. Even if it's a, the marriage is intact and this, both your, your children, you might not be on the same page. Right. Yeah. That's true. Oh, that's yeah. And, that, yeah. Oh, and for younger caregivers who are married and are just starting their family, there's that guilt of, I have to give so much to this child who has gone through this trauma that I'm taking time away from my own kids, my, my biological yes. kids that yes. need me also. Yes. So there's guilt. And then, and, and that's it also, you know, I've seen where that has created problems within the marriage and we try to get ahead of that when we're working with families. But at the same time, um, I often say talking through it or talking to talk is so much different from walking the walk. But once you're in the thick of it, um, it's, it's, it's much different. And you think yeah. you're, you know, you think you're built for it. We all think we're built for it. People who do this think they're built for it. And then when they get into it, they find out, oh my goodness, you know, there's some reconstruction that needs to happen here, <laughs> you know? So yeah, that, um, have definitely seen that even more recently, we had an, a situation where the children were related to the dad and, um, not, you know, to them, they were his, his brothers or sisters, children, but his wife, and they had their own child. His wife was the one who was the go-getter, the one who was making sure all the paperwork was done and everything was done. And he was really negative, but he felt his only part was to provide for the family. He thought he was doing his part and he felt we were, because we were trying to bring him into it and help him be a part of the process, he felt like we were trying to put guilt on him for not being more nurturing and those kinds of things. And it really, it was a whole process of working with this individual who was a stand-up guy, but who just, his whole role was, I provide for the family and all of this other stuff, this paperwork, all of this stuff, you know, I don't have time for it because I'm taking care of the family. And anything we were telling him, it was, oh, you're trying to make me feel guilty or not. And you're trying to make it seem like I don't want to do this. So a lot of different dynamics and guilt and shame, I, I tell you, it does, it, it's an underlying issue for so many things. Yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, you, you mentioned that the, the, the guilt of taking away from children for younger, the mm -hmm. children already in the family and that one uh, we hear a lot, but we also hear even for older uh, grandparents who don't have, I mean, older uh, parents or grandparents who don't have children actively in the home but they feel guilty because they can't spend as much time with their other grandkids right. and right. their relationship has to be different with the other grandkids because if the kids are all together they're parenting what they can't just be the grandmom because they're parenting one set of kids and then yet the other kids are there so how it's very confusing i mean they because they're grandparents to one and their parents to the other and it, it's, it, it changes their, their role with, with all of them. Yeah, yeah. Robin, an, another emotion, and again, this one is one that is hard to talk about because we don't want to say that we feel it, but anger. Uh, how do you see anger uh, coming into play in, uh, for uh, kin, uh, grandparents, aunts, uncles, whatever, stepping up to care for a child? 
Yeah, well, again, it's that um, surprise. Uh, we have, we've had cases where um, children abroad, you know, adult children abroad have overdosed and um, left a, a child without a parent. And, and I think that's a natural emotion, you know, that that's part of grief um, when um, someone passes, but, but it's exponential grief and, and uh, bigger emotions when you see a helpless child that could have gone into state care and uh, institutionalized had you, you know, not stepped in. And that's, that's what the system does is they look for uh, extended family and thank God they you know, did reach out to the grandparents first, but um, anger that your child failed their child yeah. is mm -hmm. very um, much a, a situation that we often see um, and putting the grandparent or aunt and uncle in that situation, suicide, you know, there's, there's anger wrapped around that um you know we we get anger uh directed at us because we require preparation and education and they think that they are just going to step into a natural role as a a, a parent sometimes they think they're actually going to be grandparents or aunts and uncles and um and that the children they're, they're not addressing the trauma that the child has experienced or the transition that the child will experience. And so they think that they've dealt with the trauma through the funeral experience and the mourning. And um, so- Or through just being there. Excuse being me. there. Yeah, being, I'm here, so that's going to fix it. Yeah. I'm giving them a home and love and shelter. And I am a relative, so that's going to fix it. That's, you know, so then when you come in and say, Hmm, you might want to take some classes on loss and grief and how to help a traumatized child. They're going, classes? I've raised this, this. I know my grandmother, I tell people all the time when we're talking about kinship care, my grandmother would not have passed this process. She was not even going to try to take the test. She was going to tell you how many children she birthed, how many grandchildren she has, how many she's raised in the community, and she does not need anyone to come in and tell her how to raise her kids. Yeah. That's the way she was. Now, fortunately, she was a very wise woman who, without having training, knew this and knew how to parent children who were hurting and anger. She knew that. That was just her gift. But um, again, Robin, just, you know, as you said, going back to the agency, when, when we get calls, they're frustrated, they're angry, and they're fed up. They don't want to write another, write, fill out another form. They don't want to um, talk to someone else telling them these are the steps in the process with us. They don't want to repeat stuff. They're angry. They're angry because they have been put in that position by a family member. They're angry because, yes, I want to do it, but now somebody's telling me how to do it yeah. and I know what I'm doing. So we get all of that anger. It's dumped on us. And a lot of times we have to talk down off the cliff and say, okay, now listen, just breathe. And um, when they realize that we know what we're doing and we can help that anger to subside, but it comes and it, then it comes back up. It comes, then the anger comes back up when they have to deal with financial issues, when they have to deal with medical issues. They're angry because there's not a healthcare system in place to help them provide for the needs of that child. They're angry because, you know, they're getting ready to retire and, 
now they have to think about working a little longer so that they can have this income. So there's a lot is the anger is directed at, um, and then that guilt plays in. You know how we talk about guilt and shame going hand in hand, but when those angry feelings come up, then they feel guilty because they're angry at that family member, that that yeah. child or that relative for creating this situation and not doing their part. Um, sometimes when they're siblings or even aunts and uncles that step in, they're angry because you know what? This parent has been like this their whole life. And this is not their only child. They did this with the first one and the second one and sometimes the third and fourth. And here we are, we have two over here with this relative, two over here with that relative. Now I have all of these people that I have to coordinate with. They're angry. Mm-hmm. And it's justifiable anger. Yeah. Um, and and they have to have a resource, um, an outlet like the support groups we talked about, Dawn, where they can vent, but they also have to have those support groups that help provide them those resources and connect them with those resources because yeah. you can't just live in the anger. They have to move past it. Yeah. And I think it's become our, you know, that adds to our role to help them to get past it. Uh-huh. And I think another area for us is the compliance of post-placement in some mm. cases and post-adoption. <laughs> oh my gosh, they do not want to do that because right. they feel so put upon. This is my, my grandchild, my niece, and now you're going to come back into my house and, and assess me. <laughs> assess me. Oh, and the anger of okay, so I've been providing and caring for this child for two years. And now that parental rights have been terminated and I have to choose whether I'm going to foster this child or adopt this child, you're going to come in and assess me and tell me, ask me, is this a safe placement for the child? And the child has been here all this time. That doesn't make sense. So we're having to help them make sense of that. Yeah. And encourage them to say, no, you know, we understand it's, you know, feels kind of crazy. It doesn't make sense. But if you want to keep these children, then you need to do these things. So they're angry. Poor family. I understand. I understand anger. Yeah. (laughs) I get it. Yeah. Well, let's also, another emotion is, uh, and this one, if you haven't thought about kinship care, often takes people by surprise. And that is divided loyalties. So Jeanette, I want to talk with you because you have both been a child raised by a grandparent, but you also have raised a grandchild. So as well as worked with hundreds of families. So, so talk to us about the divided loyalties and it plays out in, in such a, a oh myriad gosh. of ways. Yeah. So let's just, ways. yeah. So you um, start and then we'll let Robin jump in. Wow. Okay. As a provider, someone who helps uh, kinship families with adoptions or to guide them through the choice of to adopt or to be a permanent managing conservator, we see the divided loyalties, one with the children. I've even had families be referred to our agency because another agency said, I do not believe that a grandmother would deny her child access to her grandchild. And they refused to license them. They refused to do their adoption. Personally, I know that that will happen because it happened in my own life. My, I'm from, like I said, a, a very, um, a rural town, very small, close-knit community of less than what, 300, 500 people. Um, so everybody knew each other. My grand, my maternal grandparents took us in 
and my maternal, there were four of us still at home, and my maternal great aunt and uncle took in the younger two. And they had to contend with my dad, my paternal, um, the paternal side of the family. They had a very close relationship. My mom's parents and my dad's parents were very, very close, went to church together. I mean, they were friends from, from childhood. So the divided loyalty was that my mom's parents had to say no to my dad and also ma maintain a relationship with my dad's parents, my grandparents on my dad's side. Oh. And a lot of times um, from my standpoint as a provider, I keep calling myself a provider adoption agency, um, you have to be able to understand that these children don't come in to care or come into this situation with just one side of a family. A lot of times we assume that. We assume that that these are children who have a mom and the dad is out of the picture and they don't know anybody. But a lot of times in kinship, once you start digging, you find out that, and a lot of times from the child, if they're old enough, that they know those family connections in that community. They know of this aunt. They may not know the address, they might not know everything, but they know of these people. So um, that's a challenge for families. Mm -hmm is Boy, being a, positioned to where yeah. I have to do what's in the best interest of this child. I have to maintain family relationships in a way that I've never had to maintain it before. I have to say, you can't come over here. My grandfather told my dad, you just, you can't come over here. So I believe that there are families out there. I believe that kinship families will say no to that family member who will um, cause issues. I know of a, a kinship family where the niece was adopted and um, the grandmother uh, is in the life of that child and they have to guard all the time that child from that grandmother saying inappropriate things to that child because the mother is in a, in a mental institution. She has um, some issues that are going to be there. So the grandmother wants to be grandmother, but now the aunt is mother and the child, she's just, you know, she's grown up now to, she's, you know, older, but they, she's had to navigate that, those yeah. divided loyalties of just trying to whew, keep family members at bay. It's so complex. Families to. are so complex. And, and the, the, the main one you mentioned too, at, 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 in passing was saying no to your own child. Yes. Uh, you know, saying uh, that you love, I mean, you love your child. And yet you may, we've talked about some of the other emotions, anger, uh, uh, frustration, shame, and all that, but you still often have deep abiding love and a belief that that kid's going to be able to pull it together and be able, and you want to give them another chance because you mm -hmm. want them to succeed. And yet now you have a child that you have to protect. So where's your loyalty? Is it to the child or is it to your child? Uh, and I'm first. The, yeah, the, that's child, the child first. Yeah, the child first. But that is helping them to when when kinship parents don't have that perspective is really helping to guide them to that perspective. Because well, eventually yes. they and and let me add this real quick. Mm -hmm. One of the things that my grandparents did or never did was they never said negative stuff about my dad. Right. right. And when we because I was a teenager, I was 15, 16 when we would start to talk negatively or what she thought was negative, she would, she would just say, okay, I understand, but that's your dad and so on and so forth. But she would say it in a gentle way where we could, we could vent, but we couldn't be disrespectful. Huh. 
And I never saw any of them. I never saw my grandmother or grandfather disrespect my dad or any of my dad's family. So so that takes a lot of maturity. That takes a lot of spiritual maturity. That takes a lot of um, wisdom. And not everybody has that. But um, when we are trying to help people navigate this, we have to be able to help them towards that perspective. Mm-hmm. That's such a that's such a good point. And I would add, um, Dawn and Jeanette, that um, having grown up in a, a blended family with all myriads of mm-hmm. adoption and and so forth in our family, that was actually um, very significant uh, rule in our family as well. No one was allowed to speak uh, poorly of anyone's parent. Mm-hmm. Never, even though it was probably probably warranted. <laughs> um, no, it was warranted. But yes. uh, my, my parents always made the, the very best because they understood people were struggling and doing mm-hmm. their best and that they hoped things would turn around later in life. Um, but it was, it was best that we, we maintained a positive relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's important for the children um, for there to be a balance. Like I said, my grandmother allowed us, allowed us to vent, but she didn't allow us to be disrespectful. Because kids need to feel that you see what's wrong. Mm-hmm. They don't want their, their grandparent or you know, the kinship parent to act like nothing was, nothing was wrong with what the parent did. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on that age of that child, they need to understand that you see that there's some error here, but at the same time, the kinship parent as the caregiver, as the nurturer, has to be able to put that in the right perspective, be able to say, yes, I recognize that this was wrong. I know that your parent did this. Because a lot of the kids know they were there. Like uh, Robin, you said, a lot of kids have witnessed murders, things like that. They don't need that caregiver to act like that didn't happen or that that wasn't a horrible, tragic thing. They need them to acknowledge it, but they need them to also help them not to grow up with fear that this will happen in, in, in this household. That's another thing here for kids. Oh my goodness, this family's gonna fall apart too. But they don't need them to grow up with fear and they don't need them to grow up with anger and hate. So it's a balancing act. This role as kinship caregiver is huge. Mm-hmm. It's huge. And it's so different from um, non-relative adoption and non-relative care because when the kids are in foster care, there's some, there's an entity in between that's keeping those kids from that biological family and and giving those kids that sense of I'm being protected from that dangerous situation. When the kid, when the children maintain kinship connections, there's always that. And we had this fear, my my siblings and I. Oh my goodness, my dad is going to show up, and something bad is going to go down. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a oh my god, um, it's just a it's a precarious mm-hmm. position for parents, but at the same time, I wouldn't change it for the world. Mm-hmm. I am so grateful. And, and, and Dawn mentioned earlier, we want to focus on the joy of it. And there is the, that is the joy. It's, it's, it's kind of, you know, twofold. It's like, oh, it's a beautiful thing that you can stay connected with your family. Oh my goodness, but you're connected to your family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me pause for a moment and remind folks that this show is underwritten by the Jockey Bean Family Foundation. Each day, Jockey Bean Family is fostering change in hope of brighter futures for our adoptive families. 
The journey of adoption can be challenging, unpredictable, and of course, as we've just been talking about, rewarding. They believe in supporting children every step of the way. And together, they can support, educate, strengthen families to help create their own happily ever after. Please support them in this journey by going to their website, jockeybeingfamily.com slash donate. All right, another uh, complexity, shall we say, for uh, kinship families is the lack of preparation. And, and Robin, I'm going to talk to you because you've already mentioned that, but I will say uh, a couple of months ago, uh, I was talking with, it was a grandmom, a grandmother, and she said, this is a totally different type of parenting, parenting partly because I didn't choose it. It's kind of like she said, it's an accidental pregnancy, but we weren't the ones who made the mistake. So, you know, she didn't anticipate this. She wasn't prepared for it. And she didn't actually want it, but she certainly was going to step up. So let's talk about, uh, uh, let's start with uh, in, in international, because there are so, by law, there are both uh, the, the state law, but also by federal law, because it's international, there are definitely requirements. So let's start with you and talk about how the, um, the not being prepared, not choosing this, and yet then having to go through all the rigmarole, uh, how all that plays out. And, and we'll start with international, then Jeanette will come to you and talk about how it plays out, although we've already touched on it somewhat, but mm -hmm. how it plays out with domestic. Robin? Yeah, um, well, with um, intercountry adoption, um, a child has to meet the definition of an orphan, and that requires a sole, uh, a sole parent, living parent, that mm -hmm. would uh, voluntarily relinquish the child, and um, or two living parents has even the definition has actually changed, that would abandon or relinquish the child to the state. But now our state state department is actually um, qualifying that even further that they want to know that the um, certain poverty guidelines are being met with even within that unless it's a Hague country a non Hague country there they want to look into it further so even a very very poor developing country um, if they you know would want to know well the mom sells oranges on the side of the street, they might not qualify her as too poor to abandon the child. Um, they're not looking at poverty so much as a reason to choose to relinquish your child. Mm -hmm. um, but we know that, that it's other things, reasons why, why um, parents choose to uh, relinquish a child. So, um, you know, when, often when we get a phone call, um, you know, the grandparents will say, we want to give them a better life. You know, that's a move your fingers away from the visa window because they're going to slam it really hard and you're going to come back with no fingers. Mm -hmm. So we do not take those cases. Um, but when we get the phone calls and the applications that, that state the real situations where there has been a death, a, um, you know, incarceration, uh, you know, always so tragic um, situation where mental illness, grandparents were taking care of uh, two beautiful, sweet girls and the mother had ran off with another man 
and the grandparents were mentally ill and it, the living conditions were abhorrent and they were expecting them, the girls to take care of the grandparents. So, um, you know, it, they're not in a position to um, be thinking about the parents on this side, the new parents. They're not thinking about parenting them. They're thinking about bringing in their niece that they go to see, you know, they're traveling abroad and seeing them every two or three years. They're not thinking in terms of mom and dad. And so our work is really switching that role that you're gonna be a mom and a dad. You can't bring them over as that summer vacation that you've been having five years ago. Um, and the grief and the loss, like you said, we've, we've talked about that that they, they've gone through trauma. Uh, uh, we have a case that uh, a child is stuck in uh, a country that went Hague and um, they're not processing cases right now. And by going Hague, she means they became a signator to the Hague Treaty on Intercountry Adoption, which has rules and, and new rules and regulations that the country has to apply. Go ahead, I just wanted to explain to people what going Hague meant. Yes. <laughs> And our country has, our country has decided they're not compliant yet. So therefore, they have said no adoptions can occur between our two countries. And we had a child whose parent had abandoned the child and left the child with an elderly caregiver who can no longer provide care. So she's left. The child has been taken in by another person who is sexually molesting the child. We can't get the child out of the care of that person in, into the country. And so that child's going to need a lot of care and services and, you know, a lot of work to be done. And, and, and sometimes culturally, there's a lot of barriers in between getting, getting a family moved towards acknowledging that and getting them ready for that, financially getting them ready, their home. Different states have different requirements. You can't put a boy and a girl together in a room. Having them at the same age biologically, you know, there is a thing of putting uh, related children together in the same room. Uh, we had one family who had a great idea of, well, we'll just put my biological son on the couch. No. <laughs> But I mean, that may be fine and normally normal in a biological family. They may have been doing that all along, but we as an agency cannot approve that. Also getting, you know, all of a sudden other people are, are messing with your business. You know, the people are in your life saying, what do you mean? I grew up sleeping on the couch. What do you mean? I can't. Uh, Jeanette, we've talked some about the, the, the lack of, of preparation and your grandmother maybe not having passed the, the that wouldn't have passed the test. But do you see that families struggle with understanding the need to be parenting in a different way because the child has experienced trauma? Or do they take the approach of, you know what, I've, you know, I've always, you know, a good smack on the hiney is, is what it takes to, you know, whip, kip, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child, that type of, mm -hmm. in, no matter in what format it takes. Yes. Um, a lot, some of the things that, that Robin uh, mentioned as far as lack of preparation and being caught off guard and doing things in a way um, that would be acceptable if you're not 
have someone watching over you saying this is not this is not in compliance um that's one of the biggest bigger things um we have less of a problem that i've seen or that we're aware of as far as the discipline and not being prepared for that um a lot of them uh, a lot of kinship families have a history with the child already um so they are aware through either family members telling them things even if they haven't had direct contact or they have had contact and the children have been in the home but um so they're they're prepared in a sense for the trauma that the child has experienced but a lot of times they're not pre prepared fully to take in the child and deal with being in compliance with a lot of things for example one grandmother um had five grandkids and a two-bedroom house gonna work and there were um you know boys and girls of different ages from nine to 12 or 13. so there was some issues with being able to share a room the community stepped in and helped her her church community because she'd been in the church a long time they knew about these grandkids they knew she was trying to get them and she was able to get a house as a matter of fact the when she first got them she was in an apartment that was large enough because we got a variance that's a compliance issue but she went from having going moving no, i'm sorry she moved from a smaller apartment to a larger and in one weekend that whole apartment was set up and done she was moved and set up with everything from decorations on the wall why because her church community stepped in and helped her with that preparation that's why kinship families have to be connected to resources they have to have support groups they have to have people who know what resources are available in the community and they have to be willing to go to the resources that they are aware of that we may not be able to. We went into that home expecting to see boxes and stuff piled up and beds were made with, with comforters and things that were, this is a boy's room, this is a girl's room kind of thing because she had somebody to step in. So lack of preparation can be an issue and has been for a lot of people. But the biggest thing I see with the lack of preparation is not understanding the legal implications of what they're doing, not understanding um, or being angry or resistant to the compliance issues that come in when someone else is a part of this process. You can do whatever you want to when it's a private family matter. You can have the, the sun sleeping on the couch and all of that stuff, but not when somebody's coming in to say, we're getting ready to assess your home and license your home. So they're just not ready for somebody coming in and saying, you have to do it this way. Mm -hmm. And you have to do it now. And mm -hmm. you have to have you know, a TB skin test and you have to have mm -hmm. this test and that test and you have to have a background check, even though you've been taking care of the children. That's like, okay, what? And now, you know, um, with with fixed incomes for a lot of grandparents, the difference in paying for a background check is is choosing do I pay for this or do I pay the water bill? Those kind of things. So they're not prepared for the financial, they're not prepared for the legal, they're not prepared for the the agency related issues, the compliance things. That's what mm -hmm. you know that that catches people off guard. Well, and the embarrassment if there had been a criminal uh yes. situation in the past oh in their history oh my goodness mm -hmm. and, <laughs> we've had to work through a lot of those forgot about it i mean because they don't understand the system right. and so if it hasn't come up before it was supposed to have been um expunged from the record yeah excuse me yeah. yeah it's not even supposed to be on my background that happened when i was 17. Mm -hmm. We've had to work with families um and that that um thank you robin that's a big one as far as like uh preparedness and having to pass a background check 
having to answer for something that happened 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Or, or even in one one case, I think we had 40, mm -hmm. 40 years. Yeah. And you've been a and I always say, um, you know, grandmama is a sweet little church going lady now. But 20, 30 years ago, she was a pistol. That's what <laughs> that's what we say here in the South in Texas. You, yeah. She was a pistol. I mean, she was a girl on fire and in not a good way, but she's not like that. And no one has seen her like that in a number of years. But now we're going back to guilt and shame. You got this background check that came up and you have to explain actions that you took when you were 17, 18, 19, 20, 25 years old. And now you're 40, you're 50, you're 60. You're and and let's throw in the complication that you're not, it's not like, oh, I actively want to parent this child. You may right. step I didn't ask up. for this. I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't ask for this. You know, darn it. I'm doing the right thing here. You know, this is not my choice. I'm stepping up. And now you're telling me yes. you're going to drag out my past. My past. You know, and how about you have the nerve to yeah. talk about me having to do a background check. And this child was abused, neglected and all of this stuff by someone else. Mm -hmm. And I've been the one who has been who, who has taken care of this child and been the person that that has rescued this child. So now I'm under scrutiny. Yeah. And I got to pay for this. And I have to pay for it too. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to pay for it. We agree. We agree. <laughs> All right. Now I want to shift and talk about, we, we've alluded a little bit to this, but the special issues that might come up when you're bringing a child into a family that already has children living in the house. It could be a grandparent, but it also could be an aunt and uncle or a cousin. Mm -hmm. Um, so we know that, uh, that this child has experienced trauma, this, you're bringing this child in. How can we, what are some of the issues that come up and what, how can parents deal with that to try to make it easier for both sets of children, just the children existing in the family and the new child coming in? Robin? Well, we have a no corporal punishment rule, um, that we have parents sign, um, because the kids are coming from institutional settings uh, typically but then we carry that across the board because trauma is trauma and um, we know it's not always popular and of course when you're in a kin kinship situation you know i grew up with uh corporal punishment i was a quick learner i got three of them my sister had many examples for us to <laughs> witness <laughs> so um you know um in a lot of families uh, were, do practice that. And so they, they will sign it, but then they will say, but that's, we do practice this for our other children. And we're like, mm -hmm. do, you, do you see how that's going to work? And so we work really hard on providing a lot of education on different parenting and discipline. And we ask them to um, look at how that's going to impact the family and um, encourage them to incorporate that positive um, discipline and attachment parenting for all of their children. And there's a lot of pushback, uh, obviously. Yeah. Maybe they're taking it with a, got it. Uh, we do know it works for our other families that have biological children that are bringing in other children. We don't have any information or evidence how it's working for our kinship because you know they're just like shutting the door thank you very much goodbye 
Mm -hmm. um, I hope I hope they're utilizing it. But. Yeah, Jeanette, and, how, how are some, what are some other uh, issues? Is combining children? We certainly hear that there's a fear of if this child's behavior is different from your own, your, your own children's children. <laughs> yeah, and, and so then there's the fear that that behavior, uh, the sneaking out at night or just our, our disrespectful talk or cursing or whatever, the things that this child might have been exposed to uh, and or were acceptable in their private, in their previous life. How do, how do you integrate that without having your children be exposed to too much? Well, a couple points here. One, um, in preparing the families, of course, they we have training and we talk about those types of issues. So we try to get in front of it again and have a plan in, in place for, you know, if this happened, this is how you deal with this behavior. Um, personally, as, as an adoptive parent, um, we were, you know, family, a family that I mean, we grew up with corporal punishment. We did it, you know, with our son. He was eight when we got our girls. We had a, we sat down and had a talk with him and said, hey, we're going to do some things differently. Now, he was like me, Robin. He's a quick learner. He didn't, didn't have to do it often. But we let him know that the discipline um, that we were going to do would be the same for him as for the girls. And of course, there was no corporal punishment. Well, he thought they were getting away with way more than he ever got away with um, because they weren't getting the consequence that he would have gotten for that behavior. Mm -hmm. And they were doing things that he did not do. So um, that required a lot of parenting, a lot of coaching, a lot of talking. And we have to get parents ready and say, okay, you're going to have to sit down and talk some things out. And if you're not the kind of parent who didn't believe, who like, I'm not doing all that talking. I'm going to take care of that and, mm -hmm. and move on. Then it's, it's helping them transition from, from, from parenting style and discipline style. So it's, it's um, kind of staying close when you can. We have the advantage um, of being in, as far as being an adoption agency where we have more contact and we can come in and say, you need to do it this way because this is what you need to do to get that child. And when they come to us, they are really kind of at their wits end and ready to do what needs to be done. The other issue, there's not so much discipline, is like, who am I now? I'm grandmother, um, but now I'm also mother, legally. Mm -hmm. What do you call me? I've seen people come up with creative names like Mimi and Noni and things like that to help their kids differentiate. Um, but when the parent is still there, that is always an issue because now, for example, one, um, I'm aunt, but I'm mother. And then you have the, the, the extended family saying, she's not your child, she's your niece. You're not her mama, why is she calling you mama? So mm -hmm. then you have to deal with those kind of issues. So shifting roles, but mm, it takes a strong personality, a personality that's gonna stand up to a system that's in place, but also stand up to their family community. So that they can say, here's who we are. This is what you, she's going to call me mama because I'm mama. And and this is who we are now. And I do not want you coming in and saying anything else to that child. So the, the role shifts from not just with the child, but also with the family mm -hmm. and helping them to, uh, to come alongside. And when they can't, that person has to be strong enough to say, you know what? You won't be one who's going to come over or have contact with that child. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, that's really, really, um, it's tough, but that's part of what they have to do. Yeah, that's part of, that's part of being a parent, uh, yeah. a kinship parent or whatever. 
And even if it's the parent, the, if they still have contact with the biological family, parents, it's, it's making sure they understand this is my role. You can't come in and play mama. Mm -hmm. The child lives with me and, and try to um, override decisions I've made about hair or clothes or activities, those kinds of things. So it's shifting that, that role shifts greatly to where they just have to stand up and stand their ground. And yes, we've seen that a lot. Let me pause for a moment to thank two of our partners. These are agencies who have stepped up to walk beside us. Uh, as a nonprofit, they believe in our mission of providing unbiased uh, education and support uh, for pre-adoptive parents and post-adoptive parents. And they put their money where their mouth is. They, are, they not only believe in it, but they believe in it so much that they're willing to support us to help us do that for you. Uh, two such agencies are Children's Connection. They are an adoption agency providing services for domestic infant adoption and embryo donation and adoption throughout the U.S., as well as doing home studies and post-adoption support to families in Texas. And we also have Spence Chapin. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit organization in the New York City metro area that has been offering adoption services for more than 100 years. Their international adoption program focuses on finding permanent loving families for children in need of adoption in South Africa, Colombia, and Bulgaria. They are dedicated to guiding parents with lifelong support and education. All right, I would like now to offer, so we've talked about some of the issues associated with uh, kinship adoption, and there are a lot. We've talked about the joys as well, but we're, Families are messy. Let's just be honest, no matter how you look at it, families are messy. So what I want to do now is talk about some tips, tips for people who are considering it or in the midst of raising their grandchild, their niece, their nephew, their cousin, uh, or their brother or sister even. So we've talked about some of these. One is, is uh, that you were both very clear that the child's needs and best interests always come first. Not the, not the parent, even if that parent is your child, but the child you are currently parenting. All right, so we're going to do a little bit of a round robin. Uh, so since we're doing a round robin, we'll start with Robin. Robin, can you suggest another tip for helping uh, kinships, kinship uh, families thrive? Yeah, um, I would say um, if, if there's some difficulty and determining and setting roles and things, it, it would be great to make sure that they get into uh, therapy. Again, uh, money is an issue and people are so poor by the time they are finished with an adoption, if it's, unless they've done it through the state, but inter-country adoption. Um, so that's something we need our laws to change so that inter-country adoption can also access the same services that our adoptions that occur through state, um, foster to adopt through our state um, accesses. But uh, seeking the services of uh, a therapist that's adoption competent mm -hmm. would be wonderful because that is a real transition because you want that transition to occur, um, that it's not grandma who slips you $10, you know, when nobody's looking in a candy bar, like my mom does. She doesn't mm -hmm. do it to me anymore, mm -hmm. but Darn it. Um, so, you know, because grandmas just spoil you and you, yeah. 
That was hard. When you- yeah. It's a shifting role and, and having support to help you figure out how to navigate that shift is, is helpful. Jeanette, what about you? Can you think of a, a, a tip for helping families uh, smoothly transition into and thrive as uh, a kinship family? Well, um, we talked a lot about guilt, anger, shame. Um, so you got to kind of move through that pretty quickly. Um, Robin mentioned that a lot of times there's no preparation. Um, there's a lack of opportunity for planning. So you know, get over that really quickly. Mm-hmm. But get help for yourself, for the child. Get educated for yourself and the child. And use a resource. Um, okay. Support groups are wonderful. And um, they are an excellent resource for that help that you need for the things that frustrate. Um, but they're also an excellent um, uh, resource for getting help for a lot of other things, whether it's, you know, what should I do at school when these behaviors, how do I handle this in the school system? I haven't had to deal with the school system in a long time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, get help, get educated in so many different ways. And, and Jeanette, before we move off, uh, what are some places that you would suggest families look for support? Um, emotional, financial, whatever, uh, where should they, wh- where would you suggest that they look for support? Well, most of our families are referred through um, Child Protective Services. So we have um, resources and they have kinship workers who are very knowledgeable about those kind of resources. So we work with them to help connect them with community resources, but also because we're a faith-based organization, we always tell our families to look to their church community for resources, whether it's clothes and food, or sometimes there's help for playing, paying small bills, utility bills, things like that. There are, you know, the common, um, the ones that we hear about, whether it's uh, United Way or Good Meal or those in in, uh, in the community, we direct people to those resources. Okay. All right. Excellent. And, and I will throw out one, and that is, uh, well, also from the support, uh, look at most states if not all, have a Kinship Navigator program. Mm-hmm. Uh, just Google your state's name with kin- the word Kinship Navigator and reach out to them. And also, I will throw one another one out in this round robin. Uh, the, uh, and that is if alcohol or drugs were involved in the child being removed or you're mm-hmm. ending up parenting, I can't recommend enough uh, Al-Anon or Naranon. And if the child is old enough, both Al-Anon and Naranon have family groups that encourage children. Um, this really does help with uh, you setting, uh, coming to terms with, with working with uh, and living, well, not living, but working with an alcoholic or a drug addict. All right, uh, another one that I, we, we've already mentioned, and I'll just throw it out there really quick, is don't say negative things about the child's birth parents. Yeah. Okay, Robin, so any other uh, suggestions you might have tips for families? Yeah, I do. Um, One of the things that we offer our family, and I think a lot of agencies are are now doing, is we have a Your your Adoption Financial Coach, and not only are they helping you with the front-end cost of looking for grants or zero-interest loans um, to help you be financially responsible going into the adoption process, which, again, crisis is, you know, doesn't actually uh, lend itself to planning, 
but mm-hmm. also on the back end, there's there are a couple of uh, foundations. One is being um, named the Sparrow, and another is Jordan Foundation, J O R D Y N, I believe, the Jordan Foundation, and they help you for the post adoption um, services. So if if there are needs on the back end for services. Those are two organizations that um, families could tap into, and we do recommend those. Uh, a lot of times, again, uh, kinship cases are very reluctant to to reach out for those grants. Just I don't I don't know why. But in another very important thing too, uh, kinship. Again, I think it's with our families. There, it's cultural. They they look to their church maybe because it's so private or just keep it within the family but we um, very often try to get them to to please don't seek adoption advice from their friend their friend their friend because (laughs) don't have experience please take advantage of the listservs even if you're lurking and don't participate Uh, you have a great one Uh, creating a family yeah facebook Facebook.com slash creating a family. We do have a good one. You're right. It's wonderful. And you could even submit a question anonymously mm-hmm. um, and then uh, par- uh, Connected Parent, Parenting Connect, mm-hmm. which is it, Don? Uh, I think it's called Connected connecting, connected Parenting. Yes. Just type in uh, TBRI or Connected Parenting into the Facebook search engine and you will. there's a couple of them. Yeah, just really good resources for you know, the, the day that you love your kid, but you want to kill them at the same time. Yeah. These Let's are be real. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, not, that's keeping it real. Well, thank you so much, Robin Sizemore and Jeanette Willis for being with us today to talk about the, the joys and challenges of kinship care and adoption. As we always say, the views expressed in this show are those of the guests who do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Uh, Also keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your adoption or foster care professional. Thank you for joining us today, everyone, and I will see you next week.